Good morning, everyone. We're reading from two different passages this morning. And the first passage is from the book of Acts, chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Our second passage is from Proverbs chapter 21, of the, I mean, sorry, 31, verses 8 and 9. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. The word of the Lord. Well, um, it's good to be with you this morning. You know, uh, human beings are pretty smart creatures. Um, human intelligence, creativity, imagination, and ingenuity has accomplished amazing things in this world. We are capable of so much. We know so much. And yet, sometimes thinking that we have all of the answers can make us blind to things we really need to see. 
For instance, over a little over 100 years ago, one of the greatest examples of modern engineering and technology was the RMS Titanic. They called this ship unsinkable. Of course, you know the story. On its maiden voyage in 1912, the Titanic collided with an iceberg that they didn't see until it was too late. The Titanic ended up being very sinkable indeed. Now, why? Well, it wasn't because it wasn't an amazing piece of technology. It was. And it wasn't because they weren't warned. They were. In fact, several times, radio operators warned the Titanic about the iceberg. The problem is they chose not to see it until it was too late. And as a result, over 1,500 people perished. Sometimes thinking that we have all the answers can make us blind to things we really need to see. So as we think about um, our country today, one of the biggest and most dangerous and, and far bigger icebergs that we're facing today is this problem of racism. And not just thousands, but millions of lives are at stake. And the question is, uh, how should we respond to that? Especially, how should Christians respond to that? You know, what are we actually seeing? Because we've all seen the, um, the, uh, the videos of men like George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery being brutally murdered. And we've all seen the images of people filling the streets in protest and sometimes tragically even violence. But the question is, how do we respond? How do we respond, especially if we're Christians? The answer is it depends on what we're actually seeing. Because here's the reality. Our ability to respond to something is determined by our capacity to see it. When we look at what's going on in our country, what are we actually seeing? Our ability to respond to something is determined by our capacity to see it. So as we look at this problem in our country, the big question is, what are we actually seeing? One of the uh, main things that we see in this passage we just read is that this is the story of the Apostle Peter uh, learning to see and respond to racism. In fact, uh, God literally gives him a vision. Now, here's the really kind of unnerving thing about this story. Peter was already a Christian when this happened. And yet there was another conversion he needed to experience in order to um, come to grips with the racism that was in his own heart, but also in society of the ancient world. So many of you today uh, may see racism in our society. You recognize it. You see that it's present. Many others of you may not be convinced that there is such a problem as racism in our country today. But for all of us, can we just walk together for the next few minutes and look at this together? We need to learn how to respond to racism. And in order to do that, we need to see three things. And they're all here in this passage that we just read. We need to see our cultural identity. We need to see the hidden systems. And we need to see the gospel response. We need to see our cultural identity, the hidden systems, and the gospel response. Okay? First, we need to see our cultural identity. Now, the book of Acts tells the story of the early church. There were um, many external threats to the church in those days, things like persecution. But there was one huge internal threat that could have taken the church out in the very earliest days, and that threat was racism. That's actually what this passage is all about. You know, the book of Acts moves pretty quickly um, as a story until you get to chapters 10 and 11. You know how um, in the action scenes in movies, how um, sometimes they'll 
it'll go slow motion for just a few seconds at, at the um, at the crucial moment in an action scene. So, for instance, just as the football is about to land in the hands of the receiver, and then it'll speed up again. The same thing is happening in this passage. It's a way of slowing down the action and saying, this is really important. Pay attention. So in this passage that we just read, chapter 11, Peter is telling the story of what happened to him in chapter 10. In chapter 10, um, God gives Peter a vision, and, and not just once, but three times, which tells you something about how hard it was for Peter to get the message. Three times he has this vision of a sheet being let down from heaven that contained all kinds of different animals that Jewish people were forbidden from eating. So in, in the passage, as Peter relays the story, he says that he heard a voice that said, Peter, kill and eat. But the voice said, uh, I mean, the voice said, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. And then the very next thing that happens after that is the voice says, what God has made clean, do not call common. And then immediately after this episode, God sends Peter to the home of a Gentile. That's a non-Jewish person named Cornelius in order to have Peter preach the gospel to him. Now, here's what's going on in this story. Um, one of the main ways that Jewish people related to God was by means of food laws. That means some foods were considered clean and other foods were considered unclean. Those food laws got extended to, um, to people, to non-Jewish people known as Gentiles, so that um, the Jewish people saw Gentiles as being unclean. That means they refused to associate with them. They were segregating themselves. This passage is all about how God begins to put an end to that kind of segregation. And the way it begins, notice the very first thing that happens is God is helping Peter come awake to the reality that all of his customs and laws and rituals and practices were no longer normative for how you relate to God or being included in the people of God. In other words, God was helping Peter come awake to his cultural identity. What is a cultural identity? A cultural identity is it's the stories, assumptions, values, norms, ideals, and practices that help you make sense of the world and your place in it. It's the, the stories, assumptions, values, norms, ideals, and practices that help you make sense of the world. Here's the first big thing. Are you aware that you have a cultural identity? If you are a non-white person living in America, then you are hyper aware of that. In fact, every day, your life in this country, you are being reminded of it, even when you're asked to identify yourself because you, uh, you have to say that you're an African-American or a Chinese-American or a Mexican-American or whatever it is. But if you're white, you're just an American, which makes it really hard for us white people to acknowledge the reality that we have a cultural identity, that we have a set of stories, assumptions, values, norms, ideals, and practices that are different from other cultural groups. The problem is we don't see them as being different. We just see them as being normal. And I will tell you what, our non-white friends and neighbors are keenly aware of that reality. I was talking this week with a second-generation Korean pastor friend of mine who was sharing with me um, the pain that he experiences watching his 13-year-old son grow up in this society who is keenly aware that in many ways he fits in, but there are other ways 
that he doesn't fit in and how painful that is for him. And, and my friend was telling me it's so painful because it, it's the exact same experience I had growing up in a white world. There were, there were many times, he said, that I prayed that I would wake up white. And when he said that, I almost started crying because it was exactly the same thing that my wife, Jenny, has said to me uh, numerous times that, that growing up as a young girl with a Chinese face in a white world, that, that she regularly would pray that somehow, someday, she might wake up with blonde hair and blue eyes. And by the way, my wife, Jenny, very graciously gave me permission to share that story with you. But here's the thing. If you're white, are you aware that you have a cultural identity? Can you actually articulate what it means to be white? And let's just name a reality here. For, for many people, talking like this feels very threatening for white people, as if somehow we're saying that being white is bad and that we should feel guilty for it. That's not what we're saying. It's certainly not what the Bible is saying. And we're going to talk specifically about that just a little bit later. And so if that's where you're at this morning, I would invite you just hang with me for a little bit. But for all of us, can we at least come this far and acknowledge the reality that there's such a thing as our cultural identity? Because here's what's so dangerous about this. Peter's blindness to his cultural identity meant that he felt superior to Gentiles. They actually called Gentiles dogs in those days. One of the biggest challenges for the early church was dealing with the racial animosity that existed between Jews and Gentiles. Friends, that challenge is still with us today. One of the biggest icebergs facing the church is the, is the, the racial discord and animosity and blindness that exists among so many people. And so just as one of the, the first ways the early church needed to deal with this was with Peter and other Jewish Christians coming awake to their cultural identity and seeing how they had made that normative for how you relate to God. In the same way, we today, white people especially, we need to come awake to the reality that we also have a cultural identity, and yet we have made that identity normative in the world. You may not believe that being white is the same thing as having a cultural identity. And you may believe that, look, racism is nothing more than an individual sin that resides in individual hearts. But there is a deep connection between those two things. And that leads to our next point. The first thing is we need to see our cultural identity. But next, learning to respond to racism means that we need to see the hidden systems. And as soon as I say that word, you know, I know that, especially when we talk about unjust systems, that is very controversial in our society. But again, can we just walk together and, and keep looking at Peter's story here? You know, the first thing that God did was he helped Peter come awake to his cultural identity. But next, Peter needed to be freed from a deep, long-standing, organized system, unjust system, that excluded Gentiles, non-Jewish people, on the basis of their ethnicity. So in this passage, God is not only abolishing food laws. You know, there was nothing racist about the food laws in and of themselves. The, the food laws were actually a sign of the purity and devotion that God wants from his people. The problem is that for hundreds of years, those food laws had been distorted into a system that was discriminating and excluding Gentiles from the people of God based on their ethnicity. So yes, 
Is there individual racism that exists in the hearts of, of individuals? Of course there is. But there was also a long, deep, organized, unjust system that needed to be dismantled. This passage that we just read is the beginning of how God is dismantling that system. And so we still struggle with that tension in our conversations about race today. Because many people would say that, that racism is just an individual sin that resides in individual hearts. And if we could just learn to recognize the dignity of unique individuals and, and, and have better relationships with each other as individuals, and especially if we could make better life decisions as individuals, then we would overcome racism and people would have better lives. But then there are a whole other group of people that say, wait a minute, there are systems in place in our society, unjust systems, and we need to dismantle those systems. You know, one of the amazing things about the Bible is that it recognizes the reality of both individuals and systems. So for instance, one of the main reasons that our modern Western culture um, values the unique worth and dignity of every um, individual human being is a direct result of Christianity's impact in our world. But on the other hand, the Bible is also very clear about the reality of systems and structures in society, and, and especially unjust and oppressive systems and structures in society. So if we say that we follow Jesus and that we want to think biblically about this, then we have to acknowledge the ongoing reality of systems and structures, and especially unjust, oppressive systems and structures in our society. So for instance, if you look up the word oppression in the Old Testament, and I actually did that this week as part of my study, you'll find dozens of occurrences of that word. I found 88 in the search that I did. And as I went through those occurrences, many of those occurrences of the word oppression refer to systemic oppression. So for instance, the Exodus is the story of how God liberated Israel from what? Systemic oppression through slavery in Egypt. Or if you read the Psalms, it uses the word oppressed over and over, not to refer only to individuals, but to refer to a very recognizable group of people, the oppressed. Or if you um, read towards the end of the Bible, the story of how God sent Israel into captivity in Babylon, one of the main reasons God sent Israel into captivity was because of the systemic oppression that was occurring in Israel at that time. Friends, the Bible is unflinchingly clear about the reality of unjust systems in our world and God's ongoing opposition to those systems. So one of the biggest problems, one of the biggest challenges in the church's conversation about this issue is that this conversation is not happening within a biblical framework. It's happening within a political ideological framework that makes a false dichotomy between the individual and systems. We, we make a false dichotomy between those two things. This is one of the biggest challenges in our culture right now. So for instance, when you look at the disparity between life outcomes um, between black and white people. You will see a huge gap um, between uh, blacks and whites in this country. So in, um, in wealth, in education, in life expectancy, in healthcare, in incarceration rates, in many other areas, there is a huge gap in life outcomes between black and white people in our country. Now, Many people acknowledge the reality of those disparities, but, but people also disagree very sharply about the reasons for those disparities. 
Here's the thing. Statistically and sociologically speaking, white evangelical Americans have an overwhelming tendency to reject any systemic or structural cause for the differences in life outcomes between blacks and whites in our country. In fact, one of the best places to get an understanding of this is in a book called Divided by Faith uh, by two very respected sociologists named Michael Emerson and Christian Smith, both of whom, by the way, are Christians. So, um, you know, th they have uh, a special interest in this matter, but they're highly respected sociologists. Um, one of the main uh, findings in the very thorough research that they did was that white Americans in general have uh, an overwhelming tendency to, um, to favor individualistic explanations for the disparity in life outcomes between blacks and whites. When you look at white evangelical Americans, they are even more inclined to favor individualistic explanations for the differences in life outcomes. In other words, um, these are people who would say, look, everyone has equal opportunity in this country. So if you live a good life, if you make the right choices, if you do the right thing, and especially if you make the right life decisions, then you have every bit as much opportunity to succeed in this country as any white person. Now listen, if that's where you're at uh, this morning, then I know that I am not going to persuade you otherwise in a 25-minute sermon. But if that is where you're at, I would invite you at least to this. Please remember what we just saw in the first point, that we all have a cultural identity, a set of stories, assumptions, values, norms, ideals, and practices that shape the way we see the world. W would you at least be willing to explore the possibility that perhaps your reluctance to see systemic factors at work in society is a result of your cultural identity, or at least impacted by that, and even more, that if you are unaware that you even have that cultural identity, you're going to be even more unaware of how that, um, those cultural viewpoints affect the way you see the world. And by the way, one of the other really um, interesting uh, findings in uh, Emerson and Smith's book is that um, the larger your network of uh, uh, relationships with African Americans or other people of color, the more likely, statistically speaking, you will be to see um, systemic factors at play in society. So one of the main reasons we planted this church was to be a place where people can have diverse relationships with one another. But here's the thing, just having diverse relationships is not enough to combat racism in society. If, if having diverse relationships means that you're beginning to come awake to your own cultural identity, that you're becoming awake to the reality of systemic injustice and racism in our society, that's great, but there is still more that needs to be done. And that leads to our last point. The first thing we need to see is our cultural identity. The second thing we need to see is the hidden systems. But lastly, we need to see the gospel response. If we go back to Peter's story, remember what happened. First, God helps him come awake to the reality of his cultural identity. The second thing that happens is God um, brings Peter into relationship with Cornelius so that Peter begins to see how his cultural identity had um, resulted in a, an organized unjust system of exclusion uh, from, of Gentiles from the people of God. But what happens after that? It's really fascinating, and that's why I love this particular story so much. Peter goes back to Jerusalem, 
And it says that the, the circumcision party, that's other Jewish Christians, notice it says they criticized him because he ate with uncircumcised men. That's non-Jewish people. Uh, but Peter, it says, began, and he explained it to them in order. Now, what is Peter doing? How is he responding to the criticism? Well, notice what Peter does not do. He doesn't run away and hide from the conflict. Neither does Peter say, you know what? We can all just agree to disagree on this one. No, Peter, Peter puts on his Gentile Lives Matter t-shirt and he opens his mouth to advocate for the dismantling of, of unjust um, systems of food laws and the full inclusion of Gentiles in the people of God. Friends, in other words, Peter is doing what God always calls his people to do in the Bible. That is to use whatever power and privilege you might have to speak out, to use your voice on behalf of those who are being oppressed in society. And, and you see that constantly in the Bible. So at the very end of our passage, Carrie read a section from Proverbs 31. Now, I love this passage because, by the way, it's a woman um, speaking truth to her son, who's a king, King Lemuel a man of, of power and privilege. But what does his mother say to him? O king, she says, open your mouth for the mute, literally the voiceless. She says, open your mouth, judge. Literally, that means do justice righteously. Use the power and the privilege you have to defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Friends, if you are beginning to become aware of, of, of injustice, in our society, if you are seeing the poison of racial injustice in our society and you want to know, what do I do? The, the story of Peter is a wonderful model for us. In fact, it's a great example of a framework that Jamar Tisby gives us in his wonderful book, The Color of Compromise. And, and the fact that it's a wonderful book doesn't mean it's an easy book to read, but it's a good book to read. Jamar Tisby um, gives us a path forward uh, by offering us a framework that he calls ARC. That's A-R-C, which means awareness, relationship, and commitment, okay? So the first of these things is awareness. And what this means is that we need to learn and educate ourselves around these issues, especially if you're a white person. And by the way, one of the things that means is please don't ask your friends uh, who are African-American or people of color to relive the trauma of what they're going through by taking on the extra burden of educating you about this. Take that burden upon yourself to educate yourself. Read Divided by Faith. Read The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. There are all kinds of other books and resources and videos and podcasts out there. Read those things. And especially if you are white and this whole conversation about cultural identity and its impact on uh, racism in this country, if that's a new conversation to you, I would especially uh, commend to you a book called White Awake by a pastor named Daniel Hill up in Chicago. Uh, if this is a new conversation for you, or even if you've been doing this for years, you will learn something from reading this book. I found it tremendously helpful personally, and I would commend it to you. But the very first thing we need to do is grow in awareness. We need to learn and educate ourselves. The second thing Jamar Tisby says is relationship. That means that when you look at Peter, you see him moving into relationship with Cornelius, this non-Jewish Gentile person. And as Peter does that, his eyes begin to come open to other perspectives, really to God's perspective on the world. 
In the same way, when you move into relationship with people of different cultural backgrounds from you, that means that you begin to break out of your bubbles and your echo chambers. It means that you begin to see different perspectives that are viable uh, uh, perspectives that you need to be aware of. It, It also means that you can grow in empathy and compassion. Friends, the first thing is awareness. The second thing is relationship. But that leads to the last thing Jamar Tisby recommends, which is commitment. Basically, what this is, is this is the move from passivism to activism. In other words, it's not enough to simply refrain from being racist in your own life. We have to actively oppose racism when we see it in our society. That's exactly what you see Peter doing in this passage. He's not refraining. He's not being passive. He's actively opposing racism by going back to the very people that he's in community with and advocating for Gentiles towards those people. In the same way, if you are growing in awareness, if you are growing in relationship, then we also need to be growing in our commitment to actively oppose racism in this society. Now, as we've mentioned, many people want to know, okay, what do I do? You know, it's actually not that hard to come up with a list of anti-racist activities that you can engage in. We will be providing those kinds of resources to you through social media or on our website or a newsletter. You can find all kinds of resources uh, on how to do that. But Jamar Tisby is so helpful on this because he says, really, the the question here is not a how-to problem. It's a want-to problem. He says, do we want to actively oppose racism in our culture? Today, I've been so encouraged that many more people are actually saying, yes, I do want to oppose racism in our society. I do want to oppose it. And friends, the gospel not only commands us to do that, the gospel is the only thing that actually gives us the spiritual, emotional, and existential resources to actually do it. And here's what I mean by that. I mentioned just a bit ago that when we bring up these conversations about things like uh, white cultural identity or white supremacy or white privilege or systemic racism, these are controversial Uh, topics. Many people feel very threatened by this. Many white people feel like, wait, you're telling me that I should be wallowing in in guilt, that that I'm not a good person, that I'm a bad person for just for being white. It's a very threatening conversation. To many people, they feel like, just as Peter was criticized, it feels like you're criticizing white people. It feels very threatening. Uh, It feels very condemning. But if you were with us last week, remember one of the main things we saw in uh, last week's sermon that Israel so helpfully showed us, that the gospel does not erase your cultural identity. The gospel does not erase your cultural identity. It does displace your cultural identity and says that your ultimate identity is not in your whiteness or your blackness or your Chineseness or your Mexicanness or whatever your cultural identity it is. Your ultimate identity, the gospel says, is not in who you are or what you do. It's certainly not in being a good person or even in being a bad person. The thing that defines you, the gospel says, is that your identity is not rooted in anything you are or anything you do. Your ultimate identity is rooted in Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross because Jesus Christ is the God of the universe. But on the cross, Jesus was not just criticized, he was condemned so that you could be 
affirmed and welcomed and celebrated. Jesus Christ on the cross, who the God who transcends all cultural identities, was excluded so that all of us different cultural identities could be included and numbered among his people and his family. Friends, on the cross, Jesus Christ was lynched on a tree in order to defeat evil and sin and racism and injustice in our world. Do you realize what that does for you? It means that, that it doesn't erase your cultural identity. It does mean that your ultimate identity, the, the thing that defines you as a human being, is the God of the universe dying on a cross for you. That, that means that the gospel is the only thing that gives you the spiritual, emotional, um, intellectual, psychological, and existential resources to actually name your cultural identity and then even to begin to criticize and critique and, and look at what's fallen, what's broken, what's sinful about my cultural identity and its impact in this world. And to be able to do that without being devastated by the process because your ultimate identity is not rooted in any of those things. It's rooted in Jesus and what he did for you. Friends, the church still has one of its major challenges is dealing with racism in our country, racism in the church. We are committed here at Central West End Church to being a place where we want to walk and grow together in this process of, of, of opposing racism with the gospel. The gospel is the only thing that gives us the resources to do that. And we want to invite you to walk and to grow with us as we walk and grow in awareness, in relationship, and in commitment, all because we're rooted, our ultimate identity is rooted in the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Friends, um, I mean, Father, forgive me, friends. Uh, dear Lord God, we thank you for um, this passage. Lord, it's almost as if thousands of years ago, you knew that human beings would still be struggling with this. And you put places in, uh, in your gospel to show us that throughout history, this is still one of the primary things we have to wrestle with in a fallen, broken, sinful world. Lord, we lament and confess. I, as a white man, confess my own ignorance and, and complicity in, in the white supremacy in this world that I have benefited from uh, racism in this culture. And I've been ignorant about it. I haven't taken the time to learn about it. And, and we confess and lament to you, Father, uh, as a church that we have not dealt with this in this country, that for hundreds of years we have um, excluded our, our, our brothers and sisters of color and, and Father, so we confess that to you now. We repent of that now. And we want to be a place that does better. We want to not just refrain from being racist, but actively oppose racism. And we plead um, the mercy of Christ now. We plead, Lord Jesus, that your blood would uh, cleanse us and that your blood would also transform us and empower us with the, the might of your Holy Spirit to be able to actually take these resources of the gospel that you offer to us and move out into society to, to speak out, to lift up our voice on behalf of those who are oppressed. Father, for we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.